back once again to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I talk with Anthony Boyer, who's the Programmatic and Research Advisor for Europe and Eurasia at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, or IFAS. He specializes in designing and managing election assistance, civil society, civic education, political party developments, and lots of other things, um, with a particular focus on the Caucasus and Central Asia. We're going to talk with him about the political and economic reform process after the election of Shafkat Mirziyoyev as president. Let's jump right in. I'm joined this week by Anthony Boyer from the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. Uh, We are going to talk about Uzbekistan. Uh, Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So to the extent that people here have been paying attention to it, it seems like it's a a pretty good news story in a part of the world that has been a little bit starved for good news. Uh, Is that right? I would say that we've had more hope for Uzbekistan than at any time in recent memory. You know, the the president's about three years into his reform program, various reform programs, with the action strategy being I would say chief most among them. Uh, and that was very wide-reaching. looks at, at uh, social reform, economic reform. Uh, it looks at uh, uh, political reforms, the fight against corruption, things uh, that in Uzbekistan really were not on a terribly good path under his predecessor, Mr. Karimov. I would say that uh, the reform has proceeded uh, unevenly, as one could be, as one may expect. The economic reform, the judicial reform, some of the uh, the work he's done with the security services have certainly far outpaced the, the democracy governance aspect. Yeah. Now, for this kind of reform to work, it's obviously not just the work of, of one man. So there has to be some kind of a, a constituency within the elite in, in Uzbekistan for uh, some of the changes that President Mirziyoyev has been pursuing. But at the same time, there are plenty of vested interests who stand to lose from the kinds of things that he's he's carrying out. So do you have a sense of, you know, sort of how he's been able to to push through these reforms that I think a lot of us who are looking at this when he came to power thought was never going to happen. Yes, and indeed, and he was uh, Karimov's prime minister for for quite a long time. I think since '03, if memory serves. But quite frankly, I mean, he's removing the obstacles to reform process. And I think the biggest splash in that direction when he removed uh, the head of the security service, Mr. Yeah. A lot of the loyalists in the Karimov regime have been removed have been uh, charged with uh, various uh, crimes, corruption. corruption, actions against the state. In a way, it's 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 not surprising that a new leader would want to establish his own identity. We've seen something somewhat parallel in Kyrgyzstan after mm-hmm. Jinbekov uh, won the presidency. Those are, again, different cases, certainly, but... Yeah. Well, very different kinds of transitions, too. Oh, absolutely. We haven't had a, a, a democratic transition in Uzbekistan, you could honestly say, represented a free and fair process. You could look at the election of Mr. Mirzioyev himself, although uh, who could possibly have challenged him in that election? Right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes Uzbekistan really interesting in the post-Soviet landscape, because in other post-Soviet countries where you've had, you know, real political change, it's tended to come on the back of dramatic upheaval, colored revolutions, or, you know, democratic elections that have brought figures basically from the opposition to power. Um, 
and in Uzbekistan, you haven't had that. This is very much a, an intra-elite transition that nonetheless has seen um, a lot more transformation than uh, I think outside observers would have expected. And I think more than we've seen in, in other countries in, in the former Soviet Union that have gone through a similar process of kind of managed succession. Yes or no. I, I think it for, for within the region itself, it's certainly been eye-opening because I, I think we're, we've just started from such a low point in Uzbekistan that virtually any reform would have been groundbreaking in the country. It, certainly, you refer to Kyrgyzstan and, and the successive revolutions it had uh, and the successive elections that have taken place, which have been um, deemed to be in accordance with many of the standards of free and fair elections, for example, the OSCE sets. Mm -hmm. Within the region, I mean, yes, you're right. We've had uh, some transitions that have come about on the backs of violence. One thinks of Tajikistan in the 90s, for example. But then other cases where it's a very much a managed process, Kazakhstan being a recent example. Right. But you haven't seen the same kind of political transformation in countries like Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan, for that matter, where you've had this managed transition. I would say that in, in the economic sense, you probably have had a much more of a a transformation in Kazakhstan, but certainly not in the political sense. Mm -hmm. And the question for Uzbekistan is, is it trying to emulate what is going on in Kazakhstan or is it truly charting a different path? I would say at this point, there's reason to believe that this transition is going to go beyond the the managed transition in, in Kazakhstan. By the same token, many would say, well, they're still arresting journalists. They're still cracking down on uh, men with beards of a certain mm -hmm. length. Yeah. Uh, civil society has is, is not been reformed. It's not really, uh, besides these government organized NGOs, has not really sprouted up. In terms of those groups that are seeking to serve as a check and balance on the government, Mm -hmm. And one of the questions looking at Uzbekistan from the outside that we have when we see things like the arrest of journalists is how much of this is Mirzioyev and how much of this is Mirzioyev doesn't have complete control over the repressive apparatus of the state. That is, how much authority does he actually have to push through various kinds of political and economic reform? No, I absolutely agree. In fact, um, the, the change has not been embraced by the leaders at the Wilayat level and Uzbekistan, mm -hmm. the regional level uh, and lower levels. We, we see cases of, uh, of uh, leaders at those levels being reprimanded for actions taken at once if they're exposed, in fact. Uh, there's resistance. There's resistance at lower levels. Sure. Uh, change and, comes slowly. And uh, I think yeah, it's... Well, people have a vested interest in the system that got them to where they are. And, you know, somebody comes in and says, we're going to change up the way that we've been doing things. That potentially threatens a lot of vested interests, including in the local power structures. And it's not surprising that you see people pushing back against it. Well, there's a lot of money on the line, most definitely. Yeah. But I think that the president has been uh, wise to, to reach out to the Mahalas. Mm-hmm. In particular, and he has empowered them in ways that. So these are like the neighborhoods, the the very local, you know, like district level, in informal government at local levels, uh, by the the district or even the street uh, level, that are finding uh, that they have a much greater role now. Uh, for example, they have uh, the ability to send out election monitors. Uh -huh. uh, there is no independent election monitoring in Uzbekistan. That's been a long-held criticism of the country. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this is going to take the place of an independent NGO, but they will have Makala groups uh, accredited to observe. This is a, a first. Again, we measure this on a relative scale sure. uh, for Uzbekistan versus other uh, countries. Yeah, uh, or versus where Uzbekistan was five years ago. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And, you know, I remember hearing about the role of the Mahalas in the Karimov era as, you know, actually carrying out a kind of surveillance role. Part of their job was to report back to the government on what, you know, people were doing in their day-to-day lives. I wouldn't say that that role has entirely subsided. I think that uh, uh, in in many ways, this is why the uh, local officials have become more fearful because Mm -hmm. of the Mahalas and the very role that you've just outlined. Um, So it's sort of been a get on with the program or get out type of situation. And one of the things I think that's been interesting to watch is how this president uh, has brought to light the use of social media, particularly Mm. at local levels whereby residents can communicate and uh, really keep a check on local leaders and Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that they've been more accountable. So how does that work exactly? So they have uh, systems whereby now local uh, individual citizens can have a direct pipeline or direct communications line to their local leaders and Mm -hmm. they can complain about uh, or uh, file uh, complaints about issues that they see in the community that may need attention that have been uh-huh. heretofore uh, ignored or under addressed. So local leaders, you mean like mayors? Exactly. And, yeah. Yes, that's right. Uh, Hokims. Uh-huh. And uh, in fact, if those issues aren't addressed in a timely period, then those complaints get forwarded on higher. Uh-huh. So there is an accountability factor right. that uh, that this new government is trying to instill that wasn't uh, certainly the case before. Right. It's not exactly democratic accountability, but it's you know, still accountability to the constituents in some form. It is. And uh, nobody really really wants to be exposed as having not done sure. their job. Uh, you, you can see stories of this all the time where you know, somebody has uh, uh, wronged at the local level a citizen and, and this now through social media gets attention, gets uh, more focus and that finds its way often, not always, but to a higher level official and that official may be held accountable. So this wasn't the case before. There was never this level of, I would say, fear among those in power that they actually have to do their jobs. Right. Um, another area where Uzbekistan in the past was very harshly criticized was in the restrictions that are imposed on the work of groups like yours um, and other um, NGOs. Has there been real change in terms of the amount of access that you're given in terms of you know how easy it is to, to operate in the country? It's funny because the realities of working in the country and the bureaucracy that one has to go through hasn't really caught up with the desire to see the uh, to receive assistance. So the bureaucracy is quite imposing. It mm-hmm. hasn't eased a lot. They're trying, though. They're working to make the registration process more streamlined. Mm-hmm. We're not registered in Uzbekistan. We hope to be at some point, but there is a great desire on the part, in this case, of the uh, Central Election Commission mm-hmm. to receive assistance, not just for the selections as observers, but beyond yeah. uh, looking more longer-term types of institutional reforms developing professional capacity and so forth. But I can say that the officials I've encountered uh, in Tashkent, in Bukhara, where we uh, were working a bit last year, uh, and certainly the embassy here have been very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, we do hope that the processes and procedures for actually getting into the country and staying there will be easier than they were two decades ago. Sure. But the fact that you're allowed, as an individual at least, to go to Uzbekistan and, and do work is in some ways a promising sign, I would suppose. It is. And it, uh, the reason I mentioned two decades ago, that was the last time our organization worked in the country. Yeah. And uh, indeed, it was a quite a different uh, picture back then. I almost didn't recognize uh, myself when I was in Uzbekistan and, and, uh, and Tashkent and, and other parts. So it was uh, refreshing to see. Hopefully that will translate into something substantive because one always, I think, takes the, the welcoming with a grain of salt because mm-hmm. There's the process of actually doing the work once you're in right. and seeing that reforms that have been promised uh, right. are actually carried out. Right. I mean, it, 
not Uzbekistan per se, but you know, it's part of the former Soviet Union. The concept of Potemkin villages is still pretty prominent in the in the way that governments try to deal with you know people who are looking a little bit too closely into into how the sausage gets made to oh, completely mix the metaphors. Elections are a, a prime example of that, mm -hmm. where internationals in the past have been invited to come in and observe. Yeah, but really, what the objective was was to have you say good things about. Yeah, it's like oh, process. you know, we're going to take you to this one little precinct where everything is running the way that the OSC thinks it should be run. Meanwhile, in 99.5% of the country, it's a completely different story. Precisely. One of the other areas where um, President Mirziyoyev has really kind of pivoted in terms of, of his approach is in dealing with the neighbors. You know, in our, my role here, you know, I mostly look at, at Uzbekistan in the context of regional politics and security. And for a long time, uh, its relationship with Kyrgyzstan, with Tajikistan, even with Kazakhstan um, was quite bad and it really impeded prospects for regional cooperation on economics, on environmental issues, on even security. Um, and it's at least from the outside looks that this has been another area where uh, Mirziyoyev has really you know, tried to prioritize doing things in a different way and really kind of reached out to some of those neighbors in a way that we didn't see in the past. Most definitely. The resumption of direct flights between Tashkent and Dushanbe uh, was one example. The, the reaching out to Kyrgyzstan in particular has been uh, refreshing to see. Uh, I, I think those are important um, person-to-person connections yeah. uh, for people living in the region of the Fergana Valley. Yeah, certainly economic uh, uh, as well connections. But I do think that we, we do see a case where Uzbekistan does view itself as the regional hegemon. I think right. there's the rivalry with Kazakhstan yeah. that is probably intensifying in that respect. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, that has always been there. And in the maybe it was more pronounced in the early post-Soviet period, but already by the late 1990s, it was pretty clear that the Kazakhs had you know, really pulled ahead, not only because of the energy, but because Kazakhstan was, was just better run. And it's, I think it will be interesting to see, you know, how that rivalry continues to play out now that you have new leadership in both countries, including, you know, in Uzbekistan, where there is this push for some kind of reform, and in Kazakhstan, where some of the reforms or at least openings that were carried out during the, the Nazarbayev period are now being constrained in some ways amid concern about political stability. Absolutely. And I think as well, you look at the linkages uh, with the Russian Federation mm -hmm. as sort of a a measure of where these countries are at. Uzbekistan has always had a up and down relationship. Yeah, more down than up. Indeed, indeed. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, Russia has uh, a number of holdings in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that Mizrioyev and Putin uh, speak on a fairly regular basis, I would imagine. At the same time, they don't want to be perceived as being in the, the Russian pocket in, right. in a manner that you could say Kazakhstan perhaps is. Yeah. Uh, certainly the other countries are. Well, I mean, Uzbekistan in some ways is lucky in that regard. You know, unlike Kazakhstan, it doesn't have a long border with Russia. Uh, it doesn't have a big ethnic Russian population. It has a significant migrant population in Russia, but it's not nearly as dependent on those remittances as are Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. So it has you know, in some ways more freedom of maneuver than some of its neighbors do. In a relative sense. I mean, they're doubly landlocked. Right. Um, so they, they do have that, that factor and they do need Russia for, you mentioned I mean, the issue with the economy and the labor migration. I, I do think it's, uh, they, they're still a dependent uh, state in many yeah. respects for these remittances. Now, are they uh, as much a part of the GDP 
uh, of the country, these remittances, as they are of Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan? Certainly not. They have a larger economy. They have a better base of industry. But it's still a factor. And until they are able to develop other linkages, and they are, China is a very attractive partner. Yeah. Yeah, not just China, but, you know, South Korea, India, Japan. And I think, you know, the the potential has been there for a long time. I mean, Uzbekistan has, for the region, a relatively large population. It's more industrialized. But this is one of those areas where the just kind of poor political management that plagued the country for so long really impeded some of those opportunities. I think so. I mean, we had the uh, the Daewoo uh, Auto uh, Factory, which was seen as the you know great boon for that industry in the country. And I think it it uh, for a while it was, but I think in the end it sort of fell short. And I think managed mismanagement was probably yeah. the issue and the the closed nature of, of the country. There's a lot of hope, though. I mean, I think you talk about the the population. This is a country that has an enormous wealth of young persons in it. Mm-hmm. And it's a country that's getting younger by the day. Yeah, uh, You see change all over the place in Uzbekistan now. You see young people who are not only getting into uh, different professions and getting into leadership, they're also getting into politics. Right. And one of the uh, areas I've, I've seen this uh, play out is in political parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the same now uh, five registered parties or, mm-hmm. that we've had previously. The ecological movement technically is a new party. So our uh, our friends in Tashkent will say, well, we have registered a new party. You can't yeah, say we right. haven't. Well, yes, because they no longer have a 15-seat quota. Uh, so the ecological movement's a party. But what's happening if the parties themselves and the ideologies are largely part of a five-headed monster? Mm-hmm. Uh, They're all will. kind of creations of the the same they are. center. They're almost yeah. like trade unions in a way, but they're they're part of, you could say, one party. But what we're, where we're seeing the diversification, Jeff, is in the influx of young people mm. into these parties who have different ideas. Right. In fact, the Social Democratic Party is making plans to challenge Mr. Mears of the OIF. So they want to be an actual political party. It does seem that way. And they certainly have different opinions. There's debate currently in the Ole Majlis over policy, maybe not ideology, but on policy. And we're going to see how this plays out. This election that's coming up in December in about two months' time is really not an end point. It's just a point along a continuum of reform. Right. Uh, I don't think I would expect major changes in the composition necessarily. But how these parties develop uh, in terms of their energies and particular issues of reform and their ability to test the waters of how far this country really can reform politically mm-hmm. is going to be fascinating to watch. Right. Because, you know, if you're Mizoriev, it sounds all well and good. We're going to liberalize the political system. We're going to allow freer elections. And then once you start getting real opposition that wants to frustrate your plans or has a different vision for how to run the country, how receptive are you to, to working with them? Well, we've, we've seen cases in the region where parties that uh, that do come to power uh, to some degree and they're, they're challenging an incumbent president often find their efforts stifled once right. they get in. I, I don't know that they were quite at, quite at that level in Uzbekistan, but the fact that we can even talk about it now mm-hmm. is a sign of progress. Yeah. Now, what about the United States? Because the U.S. for a long time has been, not just in Uzbekistan, but in Central Asia and in the, the former Soviet Union, has been pushing for political and, and economic liberalization. And in part for that reason, I think that the question of political and economic liberalization got caught up in sort of U.S.-Russia geopolitics. Um, And you had the U.S. pushing for one thing. You had Russia opposing it because they saw it as somehow connected to the expansion of U.S. interests or of U.S. influence. So, you know, now that we see the U.S. kind of preoccupied with its own uh, 
issues, its own challenges. Does that mean that there's more kind of space for not just Uzbekistan, but for, for Central Asia more generally to pursue some of these political and economic reforms in a way that's driven not by this kind of geopolitical balancing, but kind of by a, an assessment of, of what's best for their own people? Well, I, I wouldn't want to undervalue um, the U.S. role in contributing to the reform process. I, I think that, yeah, there is a, a zero-sum perception. I, I, I realize that. But the U.S. Uh, plays a very important role in encouraging the reforms. Um, Even today? Uh, absolutely so. Absolutely. Uh, you've seen what happened in a period uh, when for example, USAID was less engaged in, in the Kyrgyz Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, there was certain certainly political regression there. The civil society sector almost disappeared. When we're not involved in leading by example is when we're not making a difference and you have the risk of aggression. Uh, and that absence of the U.S. does allow certain actors, such as the Russian Federation, to wield influence uh, more directly. So there's no pushback. You're absolutely correct in suggesting Uzbekistan wants to reform on its own terms, but it is looking to the West yeah. for that type of support in, in a number of areas. You mentioned e economics, certainly, uh, but very much so in the case of political reform. But they're being very pragmatic about it. They're being careful about how that plays out. Sure. And is there pushback from Russia and other neighbors who, you know, are worried that this kind of political reform is going to, to run counter to their own interests? I think there's a level of concern there. And we know that no matter how much work that the democracy assistance organizations provide or other international partners, Russians are very close. Yeah. And they have strategic interests there. They have the ability to project power and influence into Uzbekistan far more readily than the United States, even yeah. at its peak. Uh, of assistance. That said, there certainly has not been an overt level of pushback. But we know that um, when these countries do reform, there is a certain level of concern in Moscow. Take Armenia, for example. Yeah. Uh, the reforms that have taken place under Mr. Pashinyan have not been viewed uh, warmly in Moscow. It's in fact, been increasingly viewed with hostility. Right. And um, Armenia is a country over which Moscow has much more direct influence than, than Uzbekistan. Yes, putting it mildly. I mean, in, intense influence in the democracy and economic sectors. In Uzbekistan, it's it's not quite at that level, but still, Russia wields enormous influence. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I think what, what you could see happening, and it's not certainly unique to, uh, as we know, to Uzbekistan, is an increase in disinformation efforts, uh -huh. an increase in maybe cyber threats if they go down a certain path. These are all things out of a, a certain playbook that we've seen in, sure. in our context, certainly. Yeah, well, in, in a number of, of other countries in the region. Absolutely. In Kyrgyzstan in, in particular. Um, we've talked a little bit about Russia, but there's also uh, another bear, maybe a, a panda in the room, um, and that's of course China, which is you know increasingly the the main economic player in the region. How has the the political and, and economic reform in Uzbekistan affected the relationship with China? How much has China's presence or role uh, really changed? Well, I think it's only going to keep increasing. And I don't think it really ties in so much to the political reforms. What a, well, there, there's no conditionality. In, in right. China's, China's happy to work with, you know, whomever is there. Absolutely. And uh, uh, many countries uh, appreciate that. They, there are yeah. no you know, standards they're held up to in terms of democracy. Look, the Uzbeks are pragmatic. They understand that they 
have an ambitious agenda uh, that they need to meet. They have still internal fissures, internal threats. There are cleavages in society. We know of these very well, in Fergana yeah. Valley in particular. But above all else, they have placed the success of this uh, of this national strategy on the shoulders of the economic reform. Uh-huh. And this president has made tremendous promises and has put himself out there on the line in a way to change the economic equation in the country. So sort of staking his political legitimacy on economic performance, on improved economic performance. I think to a very large degree. And um, this is what people will, will probably be most reactive to uh-huh. or against. Yeah. And how has he done? I mean, have we seen, uh, you know, at the macro level, yes, there have been these changes, but, you know, what has been the impact on per capita income or, you know, the kind of things that, that really affect people on a day-to-day basis? I think if you were to visit Tashkent today, you would not recognize it from yeah. even three years ago. Say, I was I was last in Tashkent about nine months ago, and it looked much nicer. There, were, you know, a lot more kind of upscale shops than I had remembered. It's true, but it's also offset and contrasted by the situation in the regions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to go out to uh, Jizak or some other place, yeah. those economic reforms maybe not as felt as much yet. Right. Um, so a lot of things are happening in the center, but there is investment, much more regional investment now, and attention to the regions uh-huh. and the other problems that they have. Again, the economic reforms have far outpaced the political reforms. Yeah. The environmental agenda, education is coming along, but there there are many other areas in in serious need of uh, of addressing by this by this government. Yeah. They seem to have it mapped out, but again, it's a very ambitious agenda. Right, and th- there's the question of how much time is it going to be given. There's the question of you know what kind of political opposition is going to emerge. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uncertainty, I guess, when you pursue something that's as ambitious as that politically or economically. I would agree. One thing we haven't really touched on is the prospects of uh, radicalization mm-hmm. in the Fergana Valley, which uh-huh. remains a threat. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is the thing that people were talking about 10, 15 years ago that we haven't really heard much of recently. Well, uh, there are uh, areas of concern mm-hmm. in this country. And I think, you, if you, again, if you look at some of the policies enforced about uh, wearing a few jobs. Beards. Beards yeah. and so forth. Uh, it's almost draconian in a way that's not a lot different from when Mr. Karimov was Yeah, I was going to say it's like Tajikistan. Indeed. So again, as well, there is one officially proved form of, of Islam. Yeah. There, the, the uh, mosques are controlled. It's not to say there aren't uh, other mosques in operation, certainly. Sure. Other ideas that remains a, a concern for this government. So th- there's a certain degree, I think, to which they feel comfortable with the liberalization. But in the back of the mm-hmm. minds is possibility the, the political sense. You're talking Indeed, about. yes. Yeah. That too much of this openness in society, right. generally speaking, may be beyond their can ability to control. space for you know, groups that you don't want to. Possibly so. This, of course, raises the question about Afghanistan and sort of how the, I don't think the end of the conflict in Afghanistan, but the winding down of the the international presence uh, in that conflict and the political empowerment and increasingly of the Taliban is perceived in Uzbekistan and whether that does exacerbate some of these concerns about uh, radicalization. I think for a long time, the Uzbeks and others have perceived those influences most affecting Tajikistan, which is certainly the the weakest of, uh, arguably, of the countries in the region on a number of levels, and that they would be some some kind of uh, transit hub yeah. for uh, radicals or, or elements uh, 
to enter the region. But let's not forget that uh, there was a homegrown movement called yeah, the IMU, <laughs> which decamped to Afghanistan. Exactly. So uh, that certainly is of concern to to uh, to the Uzbeks. I think they they recognize uh, in the end they recognize the need to have uh, strong borders. Mm-hmm. They recognize a certain role played by the Russian Federation in Tajikistan security. Yeah, uh, and partnerships that they uh, are that they need to keep pursuing pragmatically. Yeah, well, and not just Tajikistan. I mean, I remember I first got interested in this region when you had the the IMU groups crossing through Kyrgyzstan, um, trying to get to Uzbekistan in the in the late nineties and early two thousands. That's right. Yeah, Botkin was yeah. a, a hub of that of uh, of those types of activities and. Uh, uh, it's still a place that when you visit, you don't sense that there's a lot of government control in. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, that, that's one of the paradoxes is you have a very strong state is not the right word, but you have a very authoritative state or authoritarian state that nevertheless, in terms of actual governance in a lot of the country, isn't there, or at least isn't there beyond kind of the security presence. That's correct. Indeed. And um, I think talking about Tajikistan, in Tajikistan in particular, it's a very weak central government and a weak, you know, failed state. It's going to be interesting to see how how uh, Mirzayev continues to reconstitute state authority across uh, some of those very populous Fergana Valley Oblast or Willowyats. He needs to have allies, as you mentioned at the outset. He is really reforming this government. He is uh, attempting to put his stamp on it and, uh, and create a, a loyal institution in a way that he hopes is, is uh, honestly built on, on, a, on a, a process, a greater degree of openness than had been the case before. But it's going to be different and a difficult balancing act yeah. for him. Uh, I, I think there, there are great hopes yeah. uh, that people have in the country, but there are still concerns and worries about how open truly the country will be. Yeah. Well, and you saw Karimov become much more authoritarian in response to the breakdown of security. Whatever it was that Uzbekistan inherited when it became independent, the just eruption of unrest and insurgency, especially in, in the Fergana Valley, really contributed to that consolidation of the of the real police state under under Karimov. And I think, you know, there is a danger that if the kind of unrest that or radicalization that you're describing occurs again, you know, whatever Mirzioyev wants, there's going to be similar kinds of pressure to to do something about it. Well, it'll be difficult to uh, continue this this openly, overtly at least, this process of reform and that has been promised when you're cracking down uh, yeah. on, on citizens. So that's going to be a challenge going forward by for this government to see how they manage that process. Again, uh, where is the line? And they, they want to honestly engage young people more. They're reaching out. They've got universities that they're opening up more. They've got international academic exchanges. Mm-hmm. They're trying to create jobs, keep the people in the country yeah. uh, is is an objective and have uh, them be fully engaged in this process of, uh, of reform and state building. Right. Well, and need to, they need to be able to find work in order to do that. That's the problem. And that's not uh, available in the Fergana Valley. Yeah. Which is still very heavily agricultural, right? Very much so. So you mentioned the the upcoming parliamentary elections. Um, do you have a sense of what's going to happen in those elections, and and what the the implications will be for the the future of the of the reform process? Yeah, I, I, as mentioned, I, I think uh, we're not going to see uh, a vast difference in the composition of the Oli Majlis. Of course, it's a bicameral parliament; only the lower house is 
directly elected, but it is directly elected uh, entirely. So they are at least meeting one of the OSC commitments. From a group of candidates and parties that are sort of pre-approved. That's true. But I think where the difference is, and as mentioned before, is to be seen in going forward to address your question is the evolution of the parties and the dialogue that we see taking place. Now, you see a lot of younger members who are joining the party ranks. They're interested in actually real issues and making a difference. Mm. Um, they're interested in, in leadership. They're interested in, in changing this country. And they're, they believe that they can do that uh-huh. through their activity in, in, uh, in, in, in the political theater. And are these you know, people who have experience abroad? You know, are they educated outside of the country? Or sort of where do they get the, you know, some of the ideas about um, reform that they, that they want to bring to Uzbekistan? Yeah, a lot of them are educated in the West. Uh, there are other... Uh, business persons and who have been brought back. This government is trying to bring back young people who have been working and living abroad in Europe, and many in Russia yeah. as well, into the ranks of ministries, trying to attract them back into government. Again, these are not necessarily, though, the the great uh, hope of opposition. These are not the Sunshine Coalition members or or, or the wayward Eric or Berlick uh, folks. But, but some of them are technocrats, or you know, who are well educated. Whatever their kind of political philosophy, at least want to you know bring new ideas to the running of the country. They do, and they know how things work. And the big difference is their ability to communicate and their uh, their own expectations, their own demands for use, for example, of innovative communication technology, social media, in their work and as, as, a, regular, as a regular way of life. And, you know, Jeff, we, we talked 25 years ago about this need for generational change to, to see anything happening here. We've had a generational change. Yeah. Things are maybe not changing so much in this part of the world as we had hoped in the 90s, per se. But it does take time. And you have to have a, a degree of political will to accept some of that change. Yeah. These are young people who are, are not going to go and overthrow the government, but they want to be part of the reform. They want to see their country open. The, the feeling that I'm getting when being in Tashkent is, is in a way, almost like a, a more drawn-out process that I saw in Yerevan mm-hmm. last year, where people said, we're free of Sarkisian. We're moving forward. We can finally get past this, uh, what, what happened in 2008 with the election, and pursue a, a new Armenia. In Uzbekistan, it's, it's that sense of euphoria may be a little bit bottled up, but it's still prevalent among people. Yeah. They, they feel that there is hope and they can do things for the first time. Right, that we could become a normal country at least. Well, that's the hope. How optimistic are you? Well, I, I'm, I'm uh, personally optimistic. I think that we have a window right now within which the political and governance reforms can take place and be pursued. But uh, I understand, and you mentioned from the U.S. side about the, the investment in this process, that there's a kind of a wait-and-see approach in the West, and particularly the United States, to see what happens. Uzbekistan's not on a lot of the radars uh, right now in this country. Nonetheless, it, it should be because it represents an opportunity to promote uh, a, a positive example to develop democracy and pursue a rights agenda in a country that has not had that. I think that the the election is, again, is a, a moment in time. It shouldn't be viewed as the right. harbinger of massive reform change, but it is a point in time. And I think that looking long-term, if we're to hold our efforts or hold our assistance and wait for bigger reforms to happen, we may be disappointed. Yeah, right. Well, and I think when you see progress, however incremental, something you want to encourage, it's certainly better than no progress. I just worry that 
you know, as you said, Uzbekistan is not particularly high on the priority list of, of policymakers in the United States right now. And given our own political dramas, it, it may not rise to the top of our priority list. And in some ways, that's a good thing. But it also means that there's a higher bar to clear um, in terms of getting people interested and engaged and, and getting assistance. And I think you have to have decision makers who understand the importance of, uh, of engagement and the, the, the model that the U.S. offers nonetheless um, and that we're looked to as, as that, that model and that, uh, that, that beacon of light, if you will. And that is uh, part of a solid and proactive worldview in foreign policy. I mean, we've got very professional diplomats in Uzbekistan who are doing a, a wonderful job. It, it really behooves everybody to understand that even limited assistance can make a big difference. Yeah. If it's targeted and conditioned on the right things. And it's just, a, it's a tough case to make in Washington right now. I think there are a lot of things that are tough cases to make in Washington. Yeah, including things that you didn't think uh, would be controversial. But that's a story for another podcast. It is indeed. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. That's it for the show today. Uh, There's a link to Anthony's bio in the show notes. As always, this is your reminder that if you haven't done so, uh, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you're not on iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. And of course, uh, as always, please send us questions for the mailbag. You can email them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll do another mailbag section here soon. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, uh, as always, a big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast, including our research associate and program manager and producer, Roxana Gavadulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and ILAP team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.